Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. On the way, there are concerns being raised about worker safety in an Illinois prison. We'll hear more. Title IX has been around for half a century, but is it still falling short? A university official thinks so. All fewer cases of HIV are being reported. The highest rates of infection remain in black and brown people. We'll hear some possible reasons why. Are school lockdown drills a necessity these days? And how do they impact kids? We'll have a report. Protections for the bobcat allow the animal's numbers to rebound in the Midwest, but as many states have again allowed hunting, including Illinois, some conservationists are speaking out and taking action. And we'll hear from a 90-year-old about to graduate college. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up this hour, we'll discuss lockdowns in schools. What's the impact on students? Also, concerns about worker safety in an Illinois prison. And a 90-year-old gets set to walk across the stage at her college graduation. Those stories and more are on the way. Bobcats were hunted to near extinction in parts of the American Midwest, and states began putting them on protected species lists. But the bobcat has made a huge comeback. Now they're hunted in nearly every state in the U.S., including Illinois. Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco reports about some efforts to protect the wildcat, even as it thrives. For 44 years, Illinois banned bobcat hunting. That changed in 2016, when the state started a lottery for permits to hunt the predators. And every year since Illinois had a bobcat hunting season, Jennifer Kuroda has lined up for one of the permits, with plans to leave it unused and possibly saving at least one of the wildcats. I've applied for a permit not to use since the very beginning and I've never received one. So uh, the odds are unlikely, but I still feel it's a method for me to be involved and have a voice in the conservation of bobcats. The bobcat is a medium-sized lynx with a short bob tail, hence the name, and dense brown-gray fur along its back with a whitish underside speckled with black. That makes it prized by hunters and trappers. The best pelts can fetch hundreds of dollars. Bureau Popescu teaches conservation biology at Ohio University, where he researches bobcat populations. He says that habitat destruction coupled with the fur trade led to a decline in bobcat populations by the 1850s throughout the Midwest. They were never in danger of extinction, but they have been extirpated from several Midwest states like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. The bobcat is not a federally endangered species. They're one of the most widely distributed, medium-sized mammals in the country, second only to the raccoon. Still, a handful of states, including Indiana and Ohio, continue to ban bobcat hunting. Most recently, California imposed a ban in 2019. Steve Balin is one of the caretakers of Boris, the bobcat that calls a Northern Illinois nature center home. He's a lynx rufus, and lynx rufus are, are all over the United States. Families crowd around the bobcat enclosure while Balin explains. The, you probably, if you didn't know that there are lynx in Illinois, you also probably didn't know that they hunt for lynx in Illinois. And, uh, right, and they, not, they don't just hunt for them, they trap them. So far, the state has hosted six hunting seasons, and hunters have nabbed more than 1,600 bobcats. 
Stan McTaggart with the Illinois Department of Natural Resources says that the lottery for hunting permits limits the numbers that get killed. We usually get about 6,000 applications for 1,000 permits, so your chances of success are, are pretty low. Matt Reed with Lake County Wilderness Preserve in northern Illinois says that in states with dense bobcat populations like Tennessee or Kentucky, those numbers are far higher. Kentucky, for example, I believe they they have, uh, they'll probably take in like thousands, they'll actually harvest thousands of bobcats, uh, maybe one or two thousand per year. So probably ten times as many as we, we do here in Illinois. Oklahoma hunters and trappers also kill thousands of bobcats a year. Stan McTaggart says the number in Illinois is about 300 bobcats a year. Even with that hunting, McTaggart says that the state is confident that the population of bobcats is increasing. Our surveys for bobcats show increasing uh, trends in abundance based on deer hunter surveys and archery deer hunter surveys. There's two different types. Jennifer Kuroda, the woman who tries every year to save a bobcat by taking one permit out of circulation, got an email from the Illinois DNR. So yeah, it says lottery winner, like the, the, the subject line says lottery winner, and then it says, Jennifer, congratulations, the bobcat hunting drawing 2022 is complete. You were successful in being issued a permit. This is your account tied to, and then my customer number. Kuroda is thrilled to have delivered a dent, however small, to this year's bobcat harvest. The way she sees it, by holding on to her permit, she increases her odds and everyone else's of catching a glimpse of the elusive links in the wild someday. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco. New diagnosis rates of HIV are way down since the start of the AIDS epidemic, but black and brown people have the highest rates of infection and die in greater numbers. Reporter Maureen McKinney looked into why that is. Kylan Hooks took a suggestion from a friend and a doctor to see for preventative treatment. His partner at the time was HIV positive, but right from the start, Hooks, a black, queer Chicagoan, was troubled by the practitioner's condescension and failure to listen. He ignored the monogamous nature of Hooks' relationship and told him he needed a boyfriend rather than pre-exposure prophylaxis treatment, also known as PrEP. It is nearly 100% successful in preventing HIV when taken properly. Fast forward a decade or so, and the doctor repeatedly asked Hooks if he had a medical degree in response to the man's questions. That really left a sour taste in my mouth with regard to who I was trusted with my medical care. He stopped seeing that doctor about three years ago and hasn't had a primary health care provider since. It's been challenging for me to find someone that I can really entrust with my health care needs and who will actually listen to what I'm expressing as the expert in my own physical and sexual health. Hooks sees the situation as a disheartening example of why black and brown people, especially those in the LGBTQ population, distrust the medical community. Experts in the HIV field agree that the trust issue is one of the factors causing people of color to be infected and die at much higher rates of the disease, even though HIV is highly treatable and virtually preventable. John Peller is president and CEO of the AIDS Foundation of Chicago. He notes that throughout the four-decade history of the AIDS epidemic, black people have accounted for about half of the people living with HIV. More than half of the people with HIV who died 2021 were black. 
when we talk about the HIV epidemic today, it's critical for us to have in the forefront of the conversation the fact that while we're seeing declines in new HIV cases among all populations, not all populations are seeing equal decline. Black and Latin folks are not seeing new cases go down at the same rates as white people. Keller points to policy-driven systemic racism. Think about segregation in Chicago, which has created segregated neighborhoods where people who are Black and, and Latinx don't have the same access to, let's just start with doctor's offices or pharmacies or healthy food. Meanwhile, their white counterparts tend to have better jobs and schools, he says, and the higher rates of incarceration under the failed war on drugs also had a disproportionate effect on Black and Latinx people, making them more vulnerable to HIV. Dr. Cynthia Tucker, a vice president at the AIDS Foundation, says there are inequities in health services, care, and treatment for people of color. It has to do with race, housing insecurity, and underemployment, she says, that is intersected with gender, sexuality, and social status. Black and brown individuals really have more disparities, more challenges, more trauma, and more stigma. If I am homeless, I am worried more so about my safety and more about where I'm sleeping and not necessarily about HIV. The Chicago Gay Men's Caucus has a mission to improve health equity for a community that is black and brown and gay, bisexual, and transgender men. Dr. Keith Green is executive director. He says the groups his organization serves are short on culturally affirming and appropriate health care. There's affordability and access to insurance and those kinds of things on the front end. And then once you get into a medical provider's office, you've got to also hope and pray that that, that provider is can provide services that cater to all of who you are. So. Um, that includes your sexuality. Green says if issues like housing, hunger, and people having to exchange sexual favors for a place to stay or clothing or drugs aren't addressed, the disparate rates of infection and death will continue. Dr. Anu Hazra splits his time as a physician and researcher at the University of Chicago in the Chicago Center for HIV Elimination. The Southside University, which has several of the neighborhoods with the highest HIV diagnosis rates, offers outreach for testing, prevention, education, and counseling. It even has a mobile medical unit. You can have all the best tools in your toolkit. If it's not reaching the communities that need it the most, if the communities that need it the most are not receptive to it, then those tools are really useless. I'm Maureen McKinney. Fifty years ago, Title IX passed to protect people from sex-based discrimination. Dr. Jessica Brown is a vice president for student affairs and athletics at North Central College. She penned an article this year about how Title IX has not fulfilled its promise to black women. Peter Medlin asked her how colleges and universities can do better. Well, it starts with believing black women and understanding their experiences, you know, there is a long history of lack of trust and lack of just normalizing that the black woman actually exists in this space and we contribute to this space. And, and so for me, it is establishing that trust. And you can start with establishing that, that trust with black women is making sure that they understand 
not just Title IX, but all policies and procedures within higher ed are for them as well. And then to make sure that when those situations are happening, people who are witnessing and hearing these things take some of the burden and speak up. I'm thinking about from the, the two lenses of Title IX, with athletics and with sexual assault and harassment. You mentioned the whole establishing trust thing. And again, I think this is something that you go over in the article too with, with sexual discrimination. It mentions how black women are, are least likely to report sexual violence, even though they're among the most likely to experience it. Yeah, well, first of all, we have to kind of dismantle the perception around rape culture and reporting culture, right? And so that's step one. And then when you take it from there, it's looking at, back to what I've already said, you have to believe them, right? And so you have to lead with that. I think oftentimes Title IX officials and other college officials, particularly in athletics, um, sometimes think that their opinion matters when it comes to these types of cases. Your opinion doesn't matter. That's not your job in this particular space. Your job is to support, you know, to take that report, to support that student, provide advocacy, help prevent its reoccurrence, and navigate and manage the policy as that student comes forward with that situation. And then I would take it to the, to the next step, which is education. Are the education materials, the climate of who's hosting those educational opportunities designed to be inclusive? When you're talking about reporting, what the process is gonna look like, have you allowed for the black woman sitting in that session to see herself in that policy? And that takes some skill that's being inclusive about what type of examples that you use, what type of language are you using, right? And then it's that third prong, um, which I think we've completely fallen short is, a lot of folks know about these things. A lot of folks hear about these things, um, but we're often silent and, and we don't wanna step out and really advocate and be that active ally for those individuals who have worked up the courage to come in and report. And then getting into the athletics, you know, you talk about how policies that are intentionally discriminatory towards black female athletes are still implemented at a lot of colleges and universities. Do you want to dive into a little bit of that issue? Yeah. Well, I want to be clear. When you look at historic how athletic departments were designed, right, you know, colleges and universities uh, they were built by black and brown folks, but they were developed by white folks, right? There are not a lot of women in these seats, right? Uh, particularly at the division one level. Um, I want to dive deeper into this and look at it from a student athlete lens, right? And so every college and university program coach has their own policy, some of which are normalized by the AD, some of which that are not, you know, depending on how your department is ran. But when you lump in the support for student athletes and writing policies for student athletes, you've taken off their own identity of who they are. And unfortunately, the marginalized folks, particularly Black women, have been penalized for that. And I, I like to use the example, what we deem as appropriate business attire, right, through the white male business ideology is not <laughs> supportive of the Black woman who wants to come into the space with what is deemed Black business attire that may be more identifiable with her Black culture, right? And so that is one that right away you see that conflict of supposed to dress up for game day and wear business attire, but that business attire isn't necessarily supported through the lens of your own culture. 
And you see those types of small nuances in woven throughout different athletic departments um, that I think over time significantly impact their overall experience. Um, another area that I see this is particularly in medical and athletic training. So that was one of the emerging themes for my dissertation is that we have black women who are going in for um, support around injuries and just trying to make sure that they can sustain through those four or five years. And we're seeing that discriminatory practices show up and how they care um, for black women in comparison to some of their white counterparts. Can you actually go into a little bit more detail about that with specifically with the AT and the research you've been doing? With, with yeah. That? And so um, one of the things, as I mentioned throughout my dissertation process, Black women were speaking up about how they were in pain or that they had an injury. And whether it was coach saying, oh, you're not really actually that her, or you have AT or medical staff folks saying, well, it's not that big of a deal, right? And taking longer to respond to their injuries or even maybe not putting them on the right injury um, recovery plan. That's Dr. Jessica Brown, the Vice President for Student Affairs and Athletics at North Central College. She spoke with Peter Medlin. Brown wrote an article this year about how Title IX has not yet fulfilled its promise, especially for black women. There's more to come on statewide. We'll hear from a state lawmaker who just won re-election and has now announced he'll leave office. That and more ahead. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Less than a month after winning an unopposed new term in the Illinois General Assembly, the Republican State Senator Jason Barrickman of Bloomington says he's out. Barrickman has announced he'll step down at the end of his current term in January. And in this interview with Charlie Schlinker, Barrickman tells why. I think it's just a reflection of me setting my priorities as we, you know, our kids are 11, 9, and 5. I, I hear from everyone this old adage that uh, there comes a time when your kids no longer want to hang out with you. I'm blessed. My kids are young enough. They still like hanging out with dad. I think this is just a re- resetting of the of the priorities and ensuring that as I look ahead, I'm available for my kids. You know, Kristen and I have uh, done our best to juggle lots of hats and really busy schedules. And while, you know, that will continue, some of the busyness will be more of dad at more of the soccer games and baseball and dance and all the various things. Yeah, I've been in the legislature now for 12 years. You know, as as we kind of came through uh, this last year and reflecting on what's ahead and, and I look at where our kids are at in their in their young lives, and uh, it just became abundantly clear that this was the time and the right choice for for me to make it. So that's what we did. Would you go through your process? Uh, it's uh, the timing seems rather abrupt, uh, right after an election in which you ran up unopposed. I think uh, I've wrestled with this for quite some time. You know, the the election schedule is um, I suppose purposely elongated. You've got to file petitions well in advance of elections. I mean, more than a year out. If you add to that the the preparation that goes into it, it's a it's a year and a half or so process. I've been wrestling this with some t- for some time. My wife Kristen has been my uh, psychologist, I suppose. But we've really looked together. 
you know, how best do you um, balance a, a busy career with um, with children? And, uh, you know, your kids, you, they develop so quickly. One year is quite different than another. Our oldest is in middle school this year. That's a first for us. And so I've really struggled with this for um, the better part of a, you know, a couple of years thinking about when the timing is right. And um, I think we came through a tough election cycle uh, in all reality. Uh, Republicans have plenty of work to do. And I think it's important work. I think it's doable work. I think that uh, Republicans and their candidates uh, can prove themselves to be competitive if they focus on problem solving and addressing the issues that the people of our state have. But among the, the priorities of my life, what bubbles to the top repeatedly is that I want to be a I want to be a dad and a, a normal one that uh, doesn't have to skip out on some of the things that I've had to skip out on. I've missed far too many events and meals. And uh, as we look ahead, the you know busy legislative session is about to commence. I thought now was the now was the right time for me. Allow me to frame this next question in an in-your-face kind of way. You have, over your career, stood against politics as usual in many ways, and yet the optics of this retiring and allowing abruptly and allowing the county party chairs to choose a successor without voters deciding uh, appears very much like politics as usual. A response to that? Well, look, the, the political process is very elongated, and the reality is that um, a, a lot has occurred in the last, uh, say, two years, year and a half or two. And uh, I, I don't make the rules on um, how elongated our process is. I don't make the rules on when you're supposed to start circulating petitions and the, you know, the barriers to entry that exist. But I can tell you in the time that I first uh, started that process, a lot has occurred. And, and most significantly, I've watched my children develop very quickly. One year to the next is quite a change. And so while I'm very respectful of the questions about timing, I think the reality is the timing was right for me and my family now, and that's what guided this decision. You have called for more centrist voices in the Republican Party, especially in light of the last election cycle, yet your exit uh, means there is one less centrist voice. You know, I think we need um, problem-solving voices on both sides of the aisle. And uh, as a Republican, I've certainly tried to play my part to do just that. And I've, I've never backed away or shied away from, the, from my view that if government is going to work, it's going to be from uh, public officials coming together and sharing ideas and perspectives that may not be our own, but uh, understanding those differences of opinions and seeking common ground. Uh, we went through, and maybe we're still in a time where the notion of compromise is a dirty word, and it's one that I've never shied from. I think government works when when both sides compromise, and I think the public deserves to have public officials who don't get encapsulated by ideology and this notion that uh, it's my way or the highway. I hope that uh, as people 
consider their own public life, whether they're in an office today or they aspire to it someday, I, I hope that others would take that same approach. What are you proudest of? My independence, I think, is something that I will continually point to as my accomplishment, quote-unquote. I remember, you know, taking uh, some very controversial votes over the years. Very early in my legislative career, uh, a very prominent Republican uh, talked to me about my vote on marriage equality. And that person told me, they said, I don't agree with your position, but I agree with your willingness to take it. And as a result of your choice, I will support you even more fervently because we need more independent voices. And I, I think that really was impactful on my career. I think it, it really gave me a boost of confidence that I needed, and it allowed me on a whole host of issues to uh, stand up for what I thought was right, notwithstanding whatever the politics are. Um, you know, we spent five years of my life, if not more, on revamping uh, our educational system, the way our schools are funded, the way families and children have access to schools. That was hugely important. To look back on it, I would say I thoroughly enjoyed that process. The outcome was what was most important. We came together, Republicans and Democrats. We totally rewrote uh, the manner in which that the educational system is funded and works. And uh, that one for me, you know, certainly stands out as one of the most significant endeavors. No one got exactly what they wanted, but the end result was something that very significantly moved Illinois and our Illinois educational system forward. Merrickman says he won't close the door in coming back to politics after his children are grown, but is not looking that far ahead. Berrickman says he'll be available to county party chairs for conversations about issues, but does not envision a role for himself in the selection process for a new senator. Berrickman spoke with Charlie Schlinker. School lockdowns have become a common experience for students. Whether they're test runs or because of an actual life-threatening situation, they can take a toll on those involved. Zach Boblett has more details. Almost every school has lockdown drills. They're often done at the start of a semester. Freshman Emily Tolbert says she believes the drills helped prepare her at North Mac, but says she's not sure how students would react during an actual active shooter scenario. We were super organized through it, which I liked, so we were prepared in that sense. But if there's an actual shooter, I don't know what we would have actually done. Like, I don't know what I would have, like, thrown at the dude or something. So, like, I don't know. It's, like, a little complicated. I don't know what I'd do because I'd probably panic a lot more than I did. Last month was a busy one for lockdowns. Three high schools, North Mac, Pena, and Taylorville, all went on lockdown in a single week due to threatening notes without any violence taking place. University of Illinois Springfield assistant professor Betsy Goulet has studied trauma and worked in child protection for over 30 years. Goulet says that lockdowns and drills have become a common occurrence for school children in 2022. This generation of kids, the kids who are in our in our elementary schools right now, have only known a world where there are mass shootings and, and school shooter drills. I mean, that, when I think about that, it's gut-wrenching. 
Tolbert says at her school, students were eventually made aware of what was going on, but not at first. Well, I thought it was a drill for like the first 10 minutes until my friend's mom texted her because her mom worked at the elementary school and asked what was going on. And that's when we realized it wasn't a drill. And then people started posting about it. But I never felt like scared. Like it was just kind of normal. The lockdown felt normal enough for Tolbert that she used humor to get through the experience. She kept her mother aware of the situation by texting. She texted her mom, I got out of a quiz, and also texted, still chilling, which she followed up with a selfie showing she was safe. The Verdon Police Department's investigation into the note is ongoing, and no arrests have been made at this time. Taylorville officials found a note written on one of the school's bathroom stalls. Police were notified and the school was placed on lockdown. Taylorville High School Principal Matt Hutchison says the school works to be prepared for such instances. We perform lockdown drills. We have a couple of different type of lockdown drills. We perform them um, a minimum of uh, once a year. Obviously in September uh, we do all of our drills. That's a good time for us to do them as we begin school. Hutchison also says the drills are color coordinated like a stoplight. Code red is in case of an intruder. A code yellow is a shelter-in-place lockdown where doors are locked and window shades are drawn. Code green is when students are evacuated from the building. Police made an arrest in the Taylorville case. Two juvenile students were also arrested in connection with the incident at Pena. Lockdown drills are required by Illinois state law following a bill that passed in 2005. Not everyone believes the drills work, though. Gun Safety Group Everytown.org believes the drills need to be reconsidered. Their site says 95% of American public schools drill students on lockdown procedures. Yet, there is almost no research affirming the value of these drills for preventing school shootings or protecting the school community when shootings do occur. UIS Assistant Professor Betsy Goulet says the unsettling part of lockdown drills are that they give students who are statistically more likely to be school shooters vital information about how to navigate within a lockdown. The drills are really about, you know, reinforcing for that student who's already in the school to know what what is likely to occur when there's violence in the building. And so, you know, think about that for a minute. We're, we're, we're telling the very person, here's what we do when this happens. According to The Violence Project, a recent book where researchers interviewed school shooters, 85% of shooters are current or former students of that specific school. I'm Zach Boblet. On Sunday, Northern Illinois University holds its fall commencement ceremony. And among the graduates, a 90-year-old who's finally completing her degree more than five decades after she first started. Joyce DeFau of Geneseo also happens to be the grandmother of WNIJ News Director Jenna Dooley, and they chatted ahead of the big day. Hello? Hey, Grandma, it's Jenna. Can you hear me? Yes. How are you doing? Fine. How about you? I am doing well. Well, as promised, I was going to follow up with you, so I wanted to see if you had just a couple of minutes to chat. I do. You're about ready to walk across the stage. How, how are your nerves? Okay. I'll be thankful and very gracious when it's over. Can you believe how time went? Did it feel like it went fast or slow? Yeah. Uh, in retrospect, it was, it was fast. 2019, when you yeah. started back up? Yeah. And you took 
you didn't take any semesters off. That's the no. thing too. Sometimes no, there's no because I thought if I did, I don't, I wouldn't want to get back. So I thought I better stay with it. You mentioned feeling every once in a while that you you couldn't do it. What kept you going? I don't know. I just guess I didn't have anything else to do. Might as well hang it out. You know, hang hang with it. 1951 when you started. Huh. In <laughs> 19, and a couple years later, you know, you left about a semester early. But what would you tell yourself then that you know now? Well, one reason it was uh, that way is because uh, I changed my major. And then I took German and typing and different things. And so I would have had to go five years instead of four. And then after I met Donna and stuff, I thought I'm not going to, if it had been six months, Yeah. But a year and six months, so my, um, I don't know what, what her her title would be. She said, I'm not even going to try to talk you into it. Back then, you'd, you'd met your, your future husband. You were ready to start a family, and, and that seemed like a really long time. Yeah, and I, I just didn't think I was, I didn't think I knew enough to teach. So that's one reason I changed. You ended up teaching quite a bit. You had nine kids. You taught Sunday yeah. school. So isn't that kind of funny how that works? Yeah. I don't like to use the term dropped out, but you left, you started a family, and, you know, you had my mother, and yeah. here I am. So yeah. I'm not too disappointed that you waited so long to come back to it. I'm awfully grateful with how your path worked out. What was it like to come back? I think you started back when you were 87. You're 90 now. Um, do you think you're a different type of student the second time? Uh, I think age makes a difference, and um, life keeps changing. Um, things that were important aren't, and other things that I needed now are important. So I'm slowing way down as far as mobility, and um, I still have my mind, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm very thankful. And I had a, I was given a fantastic family, in my opinion. I was given so many blessings, just super abundant blessings. The first time around, you came out to NIU on a scholarship a couple hours from when you grew up on a, on a farm and the first in your family. And when you left, there was a lot of um, emotions that followed you over the last couple of decades related to feeling like maybe you let your dad down because yeah, he was I so did. proud of you. He, you know, spent so much time and took me up here and him having a very limited education and then to have me just like I just threw it away uh it's like all that just for nothing uh so maybe he'll know that I finished and uh maybe I can get his thankful thankfulness do you feel something related to that that completing this journey gets that off of your yeah. heart yeah. a little bit yeah yeah gosh I'm grateful for all your life decisions whether they were hard or easy at the time here we are talking yeah. in 2022 almost 2023, and you're going to be a graduate, a, a, an NIU graduate, and I, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll catch up soon, okay? Okay. okay. See you soon. Yeah, Take right. care. Bye-bye. Yeah. That's WNIJ's Jenna Dooley. She spoke with her grandma, Joyce, who will graduate from NIU at the age of 90 this weekend. There is more of Statewide Ahead. Stay right here. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Corrections officers at Pontiac Prison staged a picket this week calling attention to what they say is a dire lack of security at the maximum security facility. A corrections sergeant was stabbed in the neck last month by an inmate. A second officer was also hurt. 
The union that represents corrections workers says the prison lacks sufficient security staffing to conduct the kind of shakedowns needed to find improvised weapons, such as the shank used in that attack. AFSME spokesperson Anders Lindahl and Pontiac Prison Lieutenant Will Lee say the prison is hundreds of officers short following years of staffing declines. In a conversation with Eric Stock, Lee says the stabbing was an attempted murder, and the Illinois Department of Corrections doesn't seem to believe officer safety is top priority. We just want to be heard by everybody, by DOC, by the public, by lawmakers, by the governor, uh, and anybody in between, um, that, that our safety is not being cared for, and a lot more could be done to ensure that, uh, yes, I'm fully aware that we work in a maximum security prison, um, but we should definitely be able to go home every day as well. Being being stabbed with weapons and and everything else that, that happens there, um, out of the other 130-some-plus staff assaults we've had in 2022, uh, it's, not, it's not a normal expectation, um, and it's not something that, that we're going to stand for and and just keep accepting every day and and um, going about our day. Has the security gotten worse over time as the number of security officers has dropped at uh, Pontiac? Security has not gotten worse. I think the ability for security staff to maintain the best possible security every day, day in, day out, has become jeopardized because of the amount of staff we are losing and the amount of staff we don't have currently. Um, and why why is Pontiac Prison losing so much staff? Uh, in my opinion, it's um, it's a it's a it's a lot of things. You have, um, I mean, you have there's all kinds of discipline that comes our way. Um, you have now now explain what you mean by discipline. Just day in day out, uh, there's there's plenty of rules in place, just like any any workplace. Uh, it could be the simplest thing. It could be uh, the most um, complicated. Is the discipline unfair, or is, it, is that is that the perception, and that's why they'll leave? In my opinion, there's a lot of it that is unfair. Um, we have there's so working in a max prison, you 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 will eventually have to use force. Uh, there's a million circumstances for that. Um, but I think that overall the past year or so, the ability for staff to protect themselves from an inmate or, uh, stop an assault on a coworker or, you know, from on themselves by an inmate, um, eventually it seems like more and more of these are ending up in discipline or potential discipline. So, of course, that adds stress to the employee, that adds um, employee or employees, um, and you're expected to come back again the next day. And, you know, do, do you second-guess yourself now? Do you – what? how do you handle that that situation different? Well, then you have a different situation the next day or, or next week. Or it's just – I think it's an overall constant stress, and that's just a couple, couple points of areas that – that staff do do stress about and is illinois department of corrections just slow in filling these positions or are they intentionally leaving them vacant the, the process for getting hired could be a lot faster and a lot of those have been brought up as well 
uh, everything takes time to change and adjust, but um, I think every, everything imaginable has been, has been discussed with the state. So it's just a matter of, I mean, the, the union doesn't, doesn't hire employees. The, the state does. Um, but we've given every, myself, I've given ideas. Uh, other people on the union side have given plenty of ideas on how to do it better, uh, speed up the process and get more staff into Pontiac and, and other facilities around the state. And Anders, perhaps you could address this if the state, if the Pontiac prison has about 450 security officers now, what, what's a good number? What's a good ratio that the union feels would would make it safe or, or safer? Well, uh, Pontiac is more than 300 officers short of its authorized headcount. So that's a number that the department itself has determined is the target uh, to operate Pontiac safely. We're talking about a maximum security facility with some of the most violent and dangerous offenders in the state. Um, and it has uh, 300 fewer of the most basic building block of the frontline security position uh, that it needs, correctional officers. Um, the state is absolutely not uh, addressing this problem as urgently as they need to. Um, AFSCME, uh two months ago, sent a letter to the director uh, with pages of suggestions about ways to hire more quickly, efficiently, and effectively. Um, and they haven't taken us up on that. We want to work with them to address the staff shortage right away. It's past time for them to treat this as a crisis. And it definitely should not take someone nearly dying uh, in order uh, for the department to wake up. What do you think it will take? Well, that is why AFSCME members at Pontiac are standing together and speaking out to sound that alarm uh, to the management of the facility, to the department, uh, upper management in Springfield, um, and to the public, because ultimately, this is about the safety uh, of everybody concerned, the safety of the employees who put on the uniform and go behind the wall each day and uh, should not have to worry about whether they will come home to their family safely at night. Uh, the safety of the public who lives in the community and in our state and has remanded the custody of offenders uh, two AFSCME members in the state prison system to keep them safely and to rehabilitate them to the extent possible, and to the safety of those offenders as well. And this is Sound Ideas. I'm Eric Stock with Anders Lindahl, spokesperson for AFSCME, and Will Lee, a lieutenant at the Pontiac Correctional Center and president of the AFSCME Local 494, the employees' union at Pontiac. And Will, given that there have been these two major incidents at Pontiac Prison in the last year, do the inmates sense that security staff is more vulnerable? I mean, in my opinion, honestly, I, I don't doubt that every day. I haven't heard anybody uh, say that out of their mouth. Um, I don't think anybody ever will. Um, but I do, I do think that overall, everybody on both sides knows that, I mean, what's, what's currently, what the, the current, um, situation is 
lockdowns are fewer and fewer. I mean, obviously with, with this incident that happened two weeks ago, we're, we're on a level one, the facility is already back to allowing inmate visits. Uh, so you're talking a week and a half, I, I think if my math's right of nothing, now we're already back to starting visits. Uh, to me, in my opinion, that's a slap in the face to the staff because there were a lot of people that were, that responded. To, I mean, obviously you have the sergeant and the officer, you have other staff right there that, that assisted too. You have responding staff that assisted, you have medical staff that um, kept kept uh, treating those two employees when they, when they got to medical staff um, and down the line, you know, going to the hospital. There's a lot of people that were directly involved in that that day. Overall, it just, it just adds more, more and more stress to everybody. Also, you, you had alluded to discipline earlier, and I wanted to touch on this, uh, this report that came out just yesterday from the uh, state inspector general um, that uh, alleged there was a climate of hazing and uh, sexual discrimination uh, among staff and creating a hostile work environment, uh, particularly regarding one guard who is perceived to be gay. They were denied relief from the IDOC. I guess they were transferred and, and later left left a corrections. What, what what do you make of that report, if either of you are in position to speak on that? You know, Eric, uh, one of our members was near fatally stabbed just less than two weeks ago now. And uh, this uh, demonstration has been in the works uh, since that incident. Um, and so we're really uh, going to keep the focus on safety in this in this conversation. So no comment then? No, we're not going to we're not going to address the inspector general's report. This is really all about staff safety. That's Anders Lindahl with AFSME and Pontiac Prison Lieutenant Will Lee. They spoke with Eric Stock. The corrections officer who was stabbed and the officer injured are both out of the hospital. Lindahl says prison management has also frequently mandated officers to work overtime shifts. He says that's left those who are working overburdened and more vulnerable. The Illinois Department of Corrections did not respond to a request for comment by the time of production for the show. A northwestern Illinois city has taken another step toward welcoming citizens with felony convictions. This month, Kiwani hired a new employee who just got out of prison. Susanna Kimmerling reports a change in employment rules made it possible, and it could happen in other locations as well. What does a formerly incarcerated person look like? A year ago, Kiwani removed legal sanctions that barred it from hiring previously incarcerated people. Last month, the city hired Mario Crowder because his felony conviction did not disqualify him, and he got the job over five other applicants thanks to his qualifications. Crowder now works as a truck driver and laborer in public works. I uh, went through the Kiwani uh, Life Skill Reentry Program. Uh, took full advantage of the programs that they was offering, on-the-job training, cognitive thinking programs, interpersonal skill programs, parenting programs that allow me to use those tools in my efforts of change and being successful. I am employed with the city of Kiwani. I embrace it every day. New place for me. The whole idea came from city manager Gary Bradley with the Kiwani Life Skills Reentry Center in town. He saw the opportunity to hire former prisoners called returning citizens by changing city's laws. The city of Kiwani believes that there is dignity and meaningful work and that returning citizens can provide 
that meaningful contribution to their communities. Bradley has been in contact with the Chicago group called the Fully Free Campaign, and last week representatives held a press conference in Rock Island with Project Now. Fully Free advocates for the rights of former inmates to prevent permanently punishing them. Marlon Chamberlain, manager of Fully Free, says hundreds of laws are in place to bar them from health care, housing, and employment, and the discrimination impacts 3.3 million Illinois residents. A criminal record shouldn't follow anyone for life. And if this is truly the, the nation of opportunities for all and second chances, then why are we continually punishing people after their debt has been paid? Project Now is a community action agency that serves Henry and Rock Island counties and is funded by taxpayers. Frequently, people who just got out of prison end up living in poverty because of legal barriers. And it's all too easy to go back to a life of crime. Executive Director Reverend Dwight Ford says it's a caste system, and the community has both a moral and common sense obligation to fix it. When individuals come out of incarceration, they have limited opportunities in housing, education, and employment. That means that they're going to need services from an agency like mine. Our agency, of course, receives public dollars to be able to provide. What I'm, what I'm pushing is either we can help individuals become part of the tax contributing base or they'll be relegated to being tax burdens. Project Now and the Fully Free Campaign created a local group called the Justice Network about a year ago, and they meet monthly at Grace City Church in Rock Island. Greg Chambers from Fully Free says the goal is to change city ordinances and attitudes in the Quad Cities. If you are skeptical, if you are apathetic, don't just believe us. Come walk with us. Join us. Hold hands with us. Stand on the steps of the state capitol with us. March with us. I'm Susanna Kemmerling. And we're out of time for this week statewide. Be with us next week for more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find this episode and all of our past episodes at the website nprillinois.org. Just look for statewide. And our weekly podcast is available through the NPR One app. Crawford and Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.